Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Every week, we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand-in-hand with baking for those we love. Today, we'll find out if our homemade panna cotta is the foolproof dessert we've dreamed of, easy, quick, and readily adapted for several dietary restrictions. We'll also take a somewhat intimidating Italian dessert, cannoli, and see if it's easier when transformed into cake form. Finally, we'll wrap up our February book club pick with a chat about Anna Del Conte's Risotto with Nettles. So grab yourself some coffee and get ready for some sweet talk. Andrea, one of our 20 for 20 preheated baking resolutions was to help ourselves and our listeners clear the clutter, do a pantry purge, and we thought we would kick off with a pantry purge tip that we're going to follow along with throughout the year, and this one about containers. Now, we recently had some great Facebook feedback from our listeners about the brands of containers they used for storage in their pantry. So, Andrea, you, Jocelyn, Craig, and Karen all like the OXO brand with the pop seal button. So satisfying. Lydia recommends using a big Tupperware tin. Michelle and myself use glass jars. And Karen and Maggie use those big food-grade pails, also called Cambro containers. So stay tuned next month. We'll have more storage tips as it relates to flour. And stay tuned throughout the year as we have our hashtag pantry purge tip of the month. Stefan, this week is Mardi Gras on February 25th. So happy Mardi Gras to those people who are celebrating it. That's right. It's tomorrow, Shrove Tuesday, as we say here. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. (laughs) I wanted to point out listener Anna. She had a great post on our Facebook listeners group asking for a TNT king cake recipe. And there were some good suggestions there. Mm. Rachel picked the one from Tea Time magazine and said now that she's made it, she will never buy one again. Jennifer posted a cream cheese variation from Southern Living, and then Maggie liked the one from King Arthur Flower. Kate made the Galette de Raw from Annie Bell, and you, Andrea, have done one from David Leibovitz when you took a baking class with Joy the Baker down in New Orleans. Yes, the inspiration for the king cake. So if you don't want to make that traditional yeasted bread with cinnamon king cake, I do highly recommend the Galette de Raw, and I'll put links to all of this in our show notes for this episode. Here in the UK, Mardi Gras is known as Strove Tuesday. And Andrea, you were here for that last year. And do you remember we celebrated Pancake Day? I remember we went and saw some people doing pancake races. (laughs) That's how you celebrate. So the pancakes were made as the last chance to use up eggs before the fast of Lent. And it has really evolved into a day of making pancakes and then having races. The ones we watched were for uh, charity. That's often how it's done this year. And then they hand out these these pancakes. Now, Andrea, you and I thought they were definitely more like a crepe. Yes. We were at Leadenhall Market, which is a really cool covered arcade that dates from Victorian times. And the people were racing up and down inside the covered arcade. You have to Flip your pancake in the skillet at least three times. 
it's quite involved. Some races, you must wear an apron and a headscarf. Some races are separated by genders. Some races take place on public freeways. There is all kinds of variations of the pancake race. So that's tomorrow. Maybe I'll get out on the town to see some more this year. You know, now that I'm thinking back on that, uh, why on earth didn't we enter? I mean, we could have been quite the formidable team with our skills. So true. (laughs) You know, there is probably enough preheated audience in London now. I should get a team together. You should. Can I do it by tomorrow? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, good luck. I'll be cheering for you if you you. can make it happen. All right, on to our recipe review. This is the panna cotta with fresh berries from Giardia de Laurentiis, and it's got pretty basic ingredients. I'm going to mention them in the U.S. measurements, and then, Stefan, you can follow up with the U.K. measurements. Great. It has one cup of whole milk and a tablespoon of gelatin. A pack of gelatin here in the U.S. is about two and a half teaspoons. So you might need a little more than a pack if you want to follow that instruction. Three cups of whipping cream, a third a cup of honey, a tablespoon of sugar, a pinch of salt, and then the two cups of assorted fresh berries for your topping. Yeah, and just very quickly, those weights and measures for the U.K. audience was 200 mils of whole milk, a tablespoon of gelatin as well, 750 mils whipping cream, 85 mils honey, one tablespoon sugar, the pinch of salt, and 350 grams of assorted berries. Other than that, I believe everything else was exactly the same as far as making this, Andrea. You had the tip last week to start with room temperature milk, which came from a video you had watched. I did. I watched Yadia make this, and she made the comment that she was sprinkling the gelatin onto room temperature milk. The other thing that I did that's a little bit different than the direction, you know how I hate having multiple bowls and cleanup. Well, the first instruction says to place the milk in a small bowl, Mm -hmm. sprinkle the gelatin over it, let it stand for three to five minutes to soften the gelatin, and then pour that into a heavy saucepan. Mm -hmm. So I just started in the heavy saucepan. I saw no reason to make another bowl dirty. How about you? Amen. And also I find that when you dissolve gelatin in a separate bowl, you have to scrape it Mm -hmm. quite vigorously to get all of the gelatin back out. So I did exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. And I did let mine stand for the full five minutes mm-hmm. to yep. let it soften. And then you stir it over medium heat just until the gelatin dissolves. But you don't want that milk to boil. Right. And that did take about five minutes for me. I still had a few tiny clumps of gelatin, but I decided to just let it go. How about you? Yeah, exactly. And at that point, you then add the cream, honey, sugar, and salt. Stir about another five to seven minutes until the sugar dissolves. I thought that actually went much faster than five to seven minutes, but I did stick with it for five And then, you know, Andrea, what I did here, because I still had little clumpies, was I strained it, which is something that we sometimes do as best practice when making a custard, when making a homemade cooked pudding, and that got rid of any that hadn't dissolved. That's a good idea. I didn't strain mine because I decided to add some vanilla in. That's Mm -hmm. another thing that Giada mentioned at the end of her video. She said, you know, you might want to add some vanilla. I love vanilla. And I actually used a vanilla bean, so I didn't Mm. want to strain out all those pretty brown flecks. But as you'll hear when I get to my review, I'm thinking maybe I should have because I felt like I had a little too much gelatin in mine. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, after that straining, then you are pouring the mixture into six heat-proof glasses. I decided to measure my liquid at this point so I would know how much to give each glass. And mine made a generous one liter, which is 32 ounces of liquid. I then put that into a pitcher 
for easier pouring. I found that was just neater than doing it out of my heavy skillet. Ah, it's like we were side by side. I did the same thing. And I had the same experience. I thought, okay, here I have four cups of liquid. I have six different glasses. Yep. In the video, Giardia uses a variety of different shaped glasses. And I thought that was kind of fun. So I tried to mix my glasses up as well. So I had different amounts in different jars and glasses. But I also threw in at the very end two in the small cups that I would try and unmold just to see if I could make that work too. Oh, right. That's how you like to have it in a restaurant or when you order it. Well, you'll see that I was still hanging on to my Valentine's Day decoration. So I made these in my little red ramekins that I love so much. And I thought that looked really pretty as well. Oh, I bet. That's so cute. So once you pour it into your ramekins or your wine glasses, whatever you're using, do let them cool slightly before you place them in your fridge. And then it says refrigerate until set for at least six hours. Mm -hmm. Is that about how long yours took? Yeah, exactly. My note says I put this in the fridge at 11 a.m. We had it after dessert. Actually, it's probably about 6.30. So that's a little bit more. But I thought the texture was really great. You know, I think in general, panna cotta does not set as hard as some other custards do. And maybe in this case, especially, that's the reason she doesn't have you unmold it. Well, and you know, this is so interesting because I actually went out to dinner with a friend a few days before making this recipe at home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was an Italian restaurant. And sure enough, panna cotta was on the dessert menu. So I was so excited. I said, I have to get this. It's research. (laughs) And my friend made the comment to me. She said, oh, you know, I love panna cotta so much, but I don't always like to eat it because I think a lot of people put too much gelatin in it. And so we ordered it from the restaurant. It came out. It was the mold type so it was upside down yeah on top there was this beautiful mixture of fresh oranges clementines I think maybe it had a blood orange in there it was just this beautiful tiny little citrus assortment and then what they called a sesame toffee so it was sort of like a sesame brittle so Mm. the the whiteness of the panna cotta and yes. then the orange and the yellow of the citrus and then the black and the brown of those sesame seeds. It was so beautiful. So I had something that I wanted to achieve when I made yes. it at home. I wanted to try and make something just as pretty. And it was pretty wobbly and I tasted no gelatin in the one I had at the restaurant. So you're saying you tasted gelatin in your finished product here? Well, I guess I would. Hmm, that's a good question. I wouldn't say I tasted gelatin, but it definitely was much firmer, the one that I made at home. So, Oh, interesting. Like I mentioned, the ingredient list is a tablespoon of the gelatin, and mm-hmm. a package of Knox is two and a half teaspoons. And I went ahead and opened a second package and did the extra to follow okay. the recipe. I think if I did it again, I would just go with one package of the gelatin, and then I would do what you did, which is do that straining. And, you know, I only had one packet of gelatin, so that's Mm -hmm. all I used. And I liked the texture a lot. Now, I'm also a big fan of, like, a burnt cream or something like that, which is Mm -hmm. definitely firmer. And that's that's not what's happening here. I thought, though, that this was such a lovely, very, very light, very subtle flavor. Mm -hmm. My honey was a honey that is from Devon, and it is just a very nice, lightly floral honey. Mm -hmm. It was smooth. It was creamy. It was soft set. I mentioned last week that fresh berries are not here in season yet in the UK. I used a packet of frozen raspberries from my freezer and made a very simple sauce. That was beautiful. It was gorgeous. I liked that it had 
a little punchier flavor and color because I wouldn't say the panna cotta is bland, but it's just very subtle. Yes, I think that's a good way to describe it. And I also made a berry sauce. I used a recipe from a website called Natasha's Kitchen. Hmm. I think we've used her for your baklava, maybe. I think that's right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. way back in first season. Yeah, and it was very simple. It was just, in her case, she used raspberry and strawberries. I just used raspberries, a little bit of lemon and some sugar, and you boil that for about five minutes and get this nice sauce. And then I also threw in some blueberries and blackberries. My husband called this the best dessert I have ever made. So <laughs> Another one. Wow. I know. <laughs> I know. He's all for the superlatives. Every week I get the best ever. Um, but that's okay. He is Italian, so it makes sense that he would like this. And we served it to some guests we had for dinner. Everyone appeared to like it. And then my husband and I had the two remaining containers the next day. Mm-hmm. And we both liked that as well on day two. Although I felt like the top layer was a little thicker. I almost wished I hadn't already put my sauce and my fruit on it because I would have maybe skimmed that off. And that's where I'm thinking maybe I had a little too much gelatin in mine. You know, the other thing, I thought this was really rich, despite Mm -hmm. it having a very gentle flavor. It was really rich. So, you know, she says make six glasses of this. I think you could maybe have that and make in a shot glass or something even smaller to have just a little bit. I think that's really all you need. I got to the end of my serving and I would just, whoa. I mean, it's two cups or something of whipping cream and whole milk. It's very, very rich. And I, I just think you could downsize it and still be very happy with a smaller portion. I agree. I used my water glasses and some smaller like highball cocktail glasses and I felt like the smaller glasses with the berry sauce was sort of the perfect amount. I also did have success with the molds for the first time so that was very exciting. So I took two really small Pyrex glass dishes and I put the last little bits of the panna cotta in there and I put a little bit of cooking spray in it before I poured the panna cotta in and they just came out beautifully. I I just flipped them over and sort of used my fingers almost to kind of slide them out, and they just Mm -hmm. slid right out. It was great. So I think this recipe is a keeper. I definitely am going to think about making it more often. I think it's also one that's great. Obviously, it needs make-ahead, so you've already got it done. And I think it's going to be good winter or summer because you can just adjust your toppings to be appropriate for the season. Yeah, 100%. It was so easy. It was just nice and elegant, and I really liked it as well. So I'm I'm going to file this under a keeper as well. Yes. Well, Andrea, it is the fourth week of February, so we will be doing a preview review of our final bake-along, and that is a cannoli cake. Of course, cannoli, classic Italian dessert of cake filled with a ricotta frosting and pistachios and chocolate chips. I famously remember that loyal listener Carolyn served cannoli at her wedding reception, which I thought was so cool. And... (laughs) As I've not seen that again at a wedding, which I just, I really loved it. It was so unique and awesome. So That is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really fun. So Andrea, I believe that you have our preview review of the Bake Along. You were able to get to this one. Yes, cannoli has something that's always been on my list. My husband loves it. We almost always get it in an Italian restaurant or in an Italian bakery. And I still am a bit intimidated on making classic cannoli. So I thought I would Mm. start with the cannoli cake. And oh, I am so glad I did. So this recipe comes from Land of Lakes. It is a jelly roll cake, which I have never made before. So I was really a bit anxious about it because it's a a technique I've never done. But it was quite easy. So the cake is made from 
six eggs, a cup of sugar, a quarter cup of melted butter, um, and then some baking powder, some vanilla, some salt, and a cup of flour. And so you go ahead and do all of that in your stand mixer. Mm -hmm. You have to separate the eggs, and you're doing the egg whites into a, you know, glossy and stiff peaks, which you then fold into the cake batter. Stefan, do you remember... As part of our 19 for 19, I -hmm. made a strawberry genoise cake back in June of 2019. I do because famously you said, I can't speak about this cake right now. (laughs) You sent me a picture and I think it was the most beautiful picture I'd ever seen of a cake you had made. And then you just said, I can't right now with this cake. So... Um, one, and I still am reserving rights on that. I mean, I do need a whole show to discuss that cake, which was fabulous, but it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And one of the things I did incorrectly when I made that cake, just because I wasn't familiar with it, is it had a similar type thing. It's a sponge Mm. cake. It's supposed Mm -hmm. to be light and fluffy. So you Mm -hmm. make your batter and then you fold your egg whites in. Mm -hmm. And with the genoise cake, mine was a little bit uneven. And so then I basically slammed my pans down on my countertop real hard to get it nice and even not realizing that that deflated my cake so got it okay lesson learned um this time when I folded my beaten egg white mixture into my egg yolk cake batter mixture and then I poured it into my prepared pan I did not slam the pan on the countertop I just popped it into the oven And so then you bake that for, it says 10 to 12 minutes. Mine actually took 14. And then this is where things get interesting, and I'd never done this before. So you pop that jelly roll pan out of the oven. You invert the hot cake onto a towel that you prepared, a clean clean towel that has been sprinkled with confectioner sugar. And then you peel off the parchment paper on the hot cake, which it came off quite easily. You dust the cake with another layer of powdered sugar, and then you tightly roll this hot cake up in your towel. And it worked. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. It it was all (laughs) happening. I was like, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. (laughs) So then you cool that completely. And meanwhile, you make your uh, cannoli filling. And this has got ricotta cheese, mascarpone cheese, cream cheese, some more powdered sugar, a little bit of heavy whipping cream, and again, some vanilla, some salt, and a little more amaretto. Yes, please. Oh, I had some leftover I was from going our to tiramisu. Say, this is really your liqueur of the month. I know. It really worked out great. And uh, you beat that mixture. And this time, I did play close attention to make sure that I didn't get that mixture too thick like yeah, I did with right. the tiramisu. Right, so, right. Again, I had some lessons learned. Um, when that cake is completely cooled, you unroll it. Again, I was very nervous. I thought, oh, my gosh, this is going to break or crack. or It didn't. It unrolled beautifully. Yay! I spread the cake with the ricotta frosting. I rolled it back up. I put it on the platter. I frosted it with the remaining ricotta frosting. And then I sprinkled my mini chocolate chips and my chopped pistachios. It was so pretty. Um, I had a slice as soon as I felt it was cool enough for me to cut into it without causing any problems. <laughs> I then brought it to a party where I know my husband had two slices. I saw some other people going back for more than one serving. So I just want to say that I think this is a keeper. And if you've been intimidated by making regular cannoli, go ahead and try out this cannoli cake from Land of Lakes because it's easy. It's fun. It's beautiful. I think it's a great party dish or again, a potluck item. It is gorgeous. 
And it sounds like if you've been intimidated by a jelly roll also that this worked out beautifully for you. Yes, really straightforward directions on that. I think there is something about the chemistry of the cake and how you have to do that. So, you know, you can fill a jelly roll cake with a variety of fillings. And this could be a way if that was maybe a 20 for 20 for some bakers or something like that to uh, have a good starting point as well. Yeah, and it's nice and light and flavorful. I mean, I think that's what I liked about all our desserts in That's Amore Month, is that everything was sort of a little bit on the lighter side. Mm, I liked that they all had cheese, so I could feel very good about getting my protein with my dessert. (laughs) Yeah, here I am saying on the lighter side, maybe what I mean is that, you know, they all had copious amounts of heavy whipping cream. So they, they were, were very dairy fluffy. focused. Yes. They were fluffy. Mm. Um, they were spongy. They were fluffy. Yeah. They were felt light. But believe me, they did taste rich. And so I just say, try this cake out if you have time. It's absolutely gorgeous and really delicious. Well, I've had a really great time during Italian month. This was a new theme month for us. We are exploring other cuisines to devote whole months to later this year and in the future. And I think Italian month really has set the standard. I I loved them all. Me too. Well, remember, we'll have a link to all of the recipes we've talked about today. And that was the Panna Cotta by Giardia De Laurentiis from the Food Network website, as well as the Cannoli Cake by Landa Lakes. We'll put those in the show notes for this episode, episode 165, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook listeners group. Stefan, we love a good book over here on Preheated, as do our listeners. Way back in episode 10, we discovered we were reading the same book. It was Kitchens of the Great Midwest by J. Ryan Stradle, and the Preheated Book Club was born. (laughs) Side note, I just finished his latest book, The Lager Queen of Minnesota, and it's another winner. Oh, that one's still on my list, but I can't wait. We had some summertime fun reading Saved by Cake by Marianne Keyes in episode 85, followed by Born Round by Frank Bruni, which we covered in episode 101. Both delightful and poignant reads. Mm. Then we decided to go all out, and we picked At the Kitchen Table by Chef Greg Atkinson in episode 121, which kicked off our entire month of literary bakes in April 2019. And of course, these are just a few of our favorites. We've mentioned others along the way, like Garlic and Sapphires by Ruth Reichel, The Gastronomical Me by MFK Fisher, and both Kitchen Chronicles and Christmas Chronicles by Nigel Slater. In this month of That's Amore, I do believe you've outdone yourself and found the perfect book to accompany our Italian theme, Risotto with Nettles by Anna Del Conte. You mentioned at the start of the month that you learned about her because she's Nigella Lawson's mentor and inspiration, yes? Yes, that's right. Nigella's been very vocal about the role and influence Anna has played in her life. In addition to mentions in her cookbooks and TV shows, in 2016, Nigella narrated a BBC Two documentary called The Cook Who Changed Our Lives, which delved into the impact Anna has had on bringing Italian cooking to England. Since we're a huge fan of Nigella's writing and recipes, I thought it would be interesting to go to the primary source and meet Anna through this memoir. And I have to admit, I just assume she would be a little bit older than Nigella, who is 60 years old. And so I was shocked when reading to discover that not only is she quite a bit older, Anna was born in 1925, which would make her 95 years old today. But also, at least as far as I can tell, she's still alive. First of all, who can believe Nigella is 60? I know. (laughs) She looks and acts years younger. 
And yes, Anna is 95, so I think we can draw some conclusions about the power of taking pleasure in your food, which both women certainly do. As I was reading this book, I was so excited because it follows the format that I love, a chapter that ends in a recipe. I had my highlighter all ready to mark the recipes I wanted to make. At the end of chapter one, the recipe is for a cream and marrons glacé bombe. Now, call me silly, and maybe I was reading too fast, but I don't think she actually told us what a marron glacé was. I had to look it up to discover it is a chestnut candied in sugar syrup and then glazed. And, ugh, I don't know, that didn't exactly grab me. Is that something you've heard of before or tried? You didn't know what a marron glacé bomb was? (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't everyone? You know, though I have no experience with this particular recipe, chestnuts are a huge deal in England. They're roasted in the streets throughout the city, sold in tins on grocery store shelves, and are a frequent addition to salads, risottos, and other dishes in restaurants and in recipes. I love them. They have a sweet, nutty taste with an almost chewy texture. Mm. Okay, on to chapter two. Lemon granita, which is so simple, it's really not even a recipe. It's just sugar, water, and lemon juice brought to a boil and placed in the freezer. And then that recipe is side-by-side with quince cheese, which looks like one of the most difficult recipes I've ever seen. Anna states in the beginning that it is not a recipe for the inexperienced cook. And then she has instructions like, This is a long and laborious process. It is impossible to know how long this will take. Stefan, I have to admit, these recipes were not inspiring me. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I was reading the recipes for curiosity's sake, not for practicality. But quick aside, quince cheese is delicious, but in my mind, best left to pick up at a gourmet deli. Were there any of her recipes that grabbed you? Uh, Sadly, I finally gave up on the recipes at the end of chapter nine when she brought out the pig's head brawn. (laughs) When a recipe's first ingredient is half a pig's head... (laughs) And Anna mentions that she asks the butcher to axe off its teeth. (laughs) That was it for me. How about you, Stefan? Which recipes grabbed your attention? And did you make any of the ones in the book? Yeah, the pig's head brawn was a first for me, too. (laughs) But I do think it's interesting that an old world custom of making use of every part of the butchered animal is having such a resurgence now. That's true. In the end, I didn't make any of the recipes, though I did find them fascinating to read and think about. I did find her descriptions of the upper-class aristocratic Italian families fascinating, and I especially enjoyed her talking about those homes and the neighborhoods that she lived in. She seemed to have such an excellent recall of the beautiful apartments and a sense of place. However, I found that she put so much time and attention into describing places, yet left me really wanting more when it came to describing people. Mm. For example, she talked about the first time she fell in love. She was 17, living in Kavi, and she fell in love with a 27-year-old lieutenant from the Army, and it warranted a mere two paragraphs. Mm. Now, Stefan, I've read whole books about someone's first love, especially during wartime, so it was so surprising to have that just glossed over. Yeah. I wondered if she was protecting her husband and children by glossing over that fact, or maybe she's simply more comfortable talking about food than people. Mm. Yeah, that wasn't the only part that left me wanting. Anna's older brother, Guido, became involved with an extremely attractive married woman, had a baby, and Anna moved in with them and shared a room with the baby. (laughs) 
Another story years later, Anna's younger brother Marco married a blonde model. They had two children, and then Anna says she eventually left him, and so Mama, at the age of 75, took over raising Marco's seven- and eight-year-old children. I mean, basically, she used four sentences to describe entire lives that seem very dramatic to me, to say the least. I know. And, you know, maybe she felt that information was her brother's story. It wasn't hers to tell. I think you're right. I read an interview with Nigella in 2009 that said it is a book that is honest and personal, but is told in such a matter-of-fact way that even casual asides confessing marital infidelity never roam into tabloid territory. Nothing smacks of the contemporary, no-detailed-spare confessional. Well, Stefan, unfortunately for me, because I love nothing more than a (laughs) no-detail-spared confessional— Less pig's teeth, more tawdry details for you. So true. I did love the story in the book about her aunt, Zia Maria, who dug a dead chicken out of its burial ground in the garden and described it as one of the best meals of her war years. (laughs) Selfishly, my favorite parts of the book were reading about all the places in London she's lived because many are very familiar to me now. I think what made her so revolutionary as a cook and author is that the British were used to very bland, very utilitarian food. Post-war rationing went on until 1954, nine years after the war had ended, and food was still very scarce, Mm. people were hungry and just making do. So I think she helped make food a pleasure and a celebration again, and the power of that probably can't be overstated. Yes. I am curious to know what you thought about her descriptions of the British. In 1949, she moved to London, and she was working as an au pair, and she made comments like, At 5.30 p.m., everything shut down, and everyone scuttled home to their uneatable high teas. Well, Anna, high tea is among my favorite meals, so (laughs) I think she's a bit harsh in her initial descriptions. But again, imagine, she was young and alone in a strange new country with no one to share any meal with, let alone tea. For Anna, like Nigella, food is best eaten with other people— Also, 1949 London was not the internationally gourmet place it is today. She probably couldn't get any of her familiar comfort foods and was just getting used to how to shop and cook in her new home. I think, though, that her views about the British changed, and now she has a real warmth and affection for her adopted home. And if she, by association, helped give the world the food writing and recipes of Nigella Lawson, then we can all be thankful for that. Listeners, if you read along with us this month, let us know what you thought of Risotto with Nettles by Anna Del Conte. And let us know what other food memoirs you love. Drop us a line at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com or post in our Facebook listeners group. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new shows every Monday morning and next week we're taking a listener suggestion and devoting an entire month to that most crucial of baking ingredients, flour. Join us as we take a deep dive into new alternatives and old favorites in our long-awaited Flower Power Month. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please tell a friend and subscribe, and consider ranking and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you download our show. Until next time, I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Thanks for listening, and sweet dreams.
Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. And I did find her descriptions of upper-class, aristotic Italian families fascinating. So, sorry, it's aristocratic. What did I say? Aris- aristocrat? <laughs> you made it up. I don't know what word that was. <laughs> <laughs>